It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Money Talks. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the author of the brand new Bartleby column, which is all about management and work. Coming up, what is the future for auditors? If some British MPs get their way, the days of the big four audit companies are numbered. I wouldn't hire you to do an audit of the contents of my fridge because when I read it, I, could, I wouldn't know what is actually in my fridge or not. And that's the point of auditing, isn't it? And why Jaguar Land Rover, who could choose anywhere in the world to invest, chose Slovakia. Were they lured by tax favours, cheap labour, closeness to markets? We'll find out later in the programme. Just before the presidential election of November 2016, many in the financial markets feared the consequences of a Trump presidency. But almost immediately, the polls started to move in the Republicans' direction. The markets started to rise quickly. And we had a Trump bump in equities. We also had a remarkable surge in confidence measures among businesses. So how does the Trump record compare with what was promised and how is it likely to affect business going forward? To discuss this issue, we have Patrick Fowles, our US business editor uh, on the line from New York. Patrick, you've just written a big piece on how business is being affected by Trump. What what do you think is the most positive aspect of the Trump record so far? Well, you know, if, if you look, spirits are high. And if you look at the, the, the last um, quarter of results, you know, it's hard, it's hard to deny uh, corporate America's doing well. Profits are up by about uh, 20% or it's roughly 10 if you exclude the benefit of the tax cut that was passed in December. And at the same time, uh, investment, which has been somewhat sluggish, has picked up sharply. It, it rose by almost 20% in the quarter. And it's really that second measure, that the investment figure that I think people should look at and examine closely. Uh, obviously, people say that the tax cut and the rollback in regulations could be encouraging an investment boom. Is that what you find when you examine the details? Yeah, well, we've been through public utterances of a large number of companies, and I think a couple of things come away. The first of all is that there's just no doubt that the tax reform, which was the first big change to the corporate tax code since 1986, is very welcome among companies. It removes a variety of complexities and problems, as well as delivering a, a kind of medium-sized tax cut. And that has definitely fed through into the capital spending plans of corporate America. So a rough rule of thumb would be that those plans have risen by about 5% since the tax cut was put in place. However, the really big trend is a bit different, and it's simply the rise of the tech firms. So the, the biggest investors in corporate America 10 years ago were industrial stalwarts like kind of G or uh, Chevron or Exxon. Now they're the big tech firms, you know, Alphabet, Amazon, and so on. And roughly half of all of the increase in capital expenditure and research and development, so half the increase in investment, is actually down to tech firms. So you could argue the bigger trend is 
the tech bump rather than the Trump bump. Now, another of the promised boost to the economy was infrastructure spending. How is Trump's record on that aspect? Yeah, so if you if you look across the sort of priorities they set, you know, they've done tax, deregulation is is happening, which companies obviously like. The performance elsewhere has been more disappointing. So infrastructure, there have been a variety of announcements and attempts to ignite public-private partnerships. But um, frankly, I don't think a lot's happening. And most people don't think the federal government has the stomach or the money to, to do a big infrastructure boom. And likewise, uh, another plank of the Trump plan, which was sort of giving chief executives direct access to the White House, and you will remember some of the summits and televised meetings between Trump and uh, the captains of industry, that, that has sort of fizzled out as well as it's become clear that the benefits of close proximity to Trump can be really quite unpredictable. Yes, maybe we should move from uh, Trump light to the sort of Donnie Darko aspect of the personality. So there there are two things I think people worry about, don't they? The first is his attacks on individual businesses and general tendency to tweet about his opinion on uh, issues all over the place. One particular report that has disturbed people is the idea that he wanted the uh, US mail to charge Amazon more uh, for its uh, deliveries. Is that a concern to business that they might end up on the wrong end of his temper? Well, one of the strange things about companies and probably also human beings is is we tend to assume we're luckier than average. So, you know, I think a lot of companies probably sit there and think that they can somehow benefit from a more discretionary personality led system of government um, and that someone else will be on the other side of the deal and, and, and get hit. Um, so I think there's probably a, a little bit of that going on where companies are aware that the method with which um, the government is making decisions has changed for the worse, but somehow they don't think they're going to be affected. So I think one, one category of danger and risk to business is this idea of kind of arbitrary personalized decision making. But there are other ones as well. I mean, an interesting change, I think, will be the rise in compliance. So although the policies of the Trump administration are to deregulate domestically, really, in effect, what they're doing is heavily regulating trade. And you're beginning to see some of the kind of compliance and and regulatory infrastructure around regulating trade be put into effect. So, for example, Congress has a bill going through it at the moment for vetting foreign deals. And the other type of cost is really just the direct costs of protectionism, where a reasonable number of companies have complained about rising steel prices, for example, as a consequence of the tariffs that have been proposed. And as we speak today, Japan and Russia have announced their uh, retaliatory measures towards uh, the U.S. for uh, some of its tariff policies. Um, The Chinese trade war seems to have um, cooled off a little. But where are we in that process? Um, Do you think that the U.S. is moving in a heavily more protectionist uh, direction? Or is it the case that Donald Trump makes quite big demands initially and then settles for something less? Well, one of the working theories was um, uh, from the art of the deal, which lots of CEOs and investors refreshed um, themselves of after the election, which had had this idea of kind of making outrageous demands as a negotiating tactic and then being more reasonable afterwards. I think that there is perhaps the expectation that that is going on. Having said that, I think it also comes with a more disturbing undertone, which is that any new deals that are struck, for example, NAFTA or with China, 
I think there's a real sense in which those become fragile. And you can imagine a situation, for example, where a new NAFTA deal is struck. Uh, and yet, 18 months on, America's uh, trade deficit with Mexico deteriorates for some completely different reason, and, and the White House rips up the treaty completely, or similarly with China. So even if you believe that there's an element of, of theatre and gamesmanship to some of the most aggressive postures struck by the White House, I think one should also worry that the sort of stability of any ultimate agreement is, is far lower than under previous administrations. And the hope, or the promise, perhaps all these policies, would that U.S. growth would edge up to the three to four percent annual rate. Do you think there's any likelihood of that as a medium-term prospect? Well, the growth numbers have touched those levels, and if you, if you look at the increase in capital expenditure that has happened, although it's very tech-heavy, that should increase the productive capacity of the economy. I think what's on a lot of people's minds is just that this expansion is already the second longest in American history, which means at some point, maybe in a year, two years, maybe three years, the probability of a recession becomes quite high. And then you're again in a, in a completely different situation. And it will be interesting to see in the event of a recession how a populist government reacts towards companies that do what they normally do in a downturn, which is fire people and cut investment. And you can imagine the politics of that becoming quite toxic. Well, if you want to read more about this, there's a briefing in this week's issue by Patrick Fowles. Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. Next, are auditors too close to the companies they're looking at? There have been calls in Britain for a forcible breakup of the big four accountancy firms that audit many of the leading companies. A report by MPs recently described them as cosy clubs incapable of providing the degree of independent challenge needed. So is there a better system? Rachna Shambhog is the business correspondent for The Economist. Why have suddenly people started to worry about the power of the audit firms? There's several structural problems with the audit industry, and there have been for some time. One problem that's sort of come to light uh, because of Carillion is that the audit sector is extremely concentrated. Over 95% of companies that are listed on the S&P 500 and the FTSE 350 exchanges are audited by one of the big four. The big four are KPMG, Ernst & Young, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte. That's that right. right. And Carillion is a outsourcing company that went bust recently. That's right. And MPs concluded that KPMG was complacent in its audit of the accounts and that might have been because it had been the auditor of Carillion for nearly 19 years and criticised it. Now, one of the difficulties with auditing and why people worry about the way the system is set up is that the audit company is paid by the company it's auditing. That's right. And that means that auditors' incentives aren't aligned with those of the people who are actually using the financial accounts, which is the investor. There have been some measures to sort of try and make auditors more independent ever since Enron collapsed, taking its auditor, Arthur Anderson, down with it in the early 2000s. But the question of incentives might still remain. And what alternatives might there be to having the company pay its auditor? Well, there are a couple of ideas that have been floating around for a few years. One is the idea of financial statements insurance, where the company is asked to ensure the accuracy of its financial statements. And the insurer would then appoint an auditor to scrutinise the financial accounts to determine what the premium for that insurance should be. 
Another idea might be that the securities regulator appoints the auditor on behalf of the company. Now, there are only four big auditors. Why is that, do you think? Why isn't there more competition within the sector? The auditors would say that that's because they're looking at the accounts of really big companies that are spread all across the world. And so having a global network is really important. It might be more difficult for small firms to to look at thousands of transactions. Breaking up the audit firms, do you think that would be a useful solution? I think it's important to remember that audit regulators in Europe already have a tool to look at competition, and that is a mandatory tendering and rotation of auditors. So in the UK, companies must retender for an auditor if they've had the same auditor for 10 years. And then if they've had the same auditor for 20 years, they must rotate the auditor. So it's possible for regulators to shrink those periods of time in order to increase competition. And that might be an easier and less drastic way of introducing competition into the market. The other issue, I think, which breakup might not fix is uh, the fact that incentives for auditors aren't aligned with those of investors. And I think uh, perhaps looking at the audit payer model might be more fruitful when it comes to that. Isn't the fundamental problem, though, that it's impossible for the auditors to get everything right. In a modern company, there's a lot of businesses which have a value which is pretty intangible. It's not like widgets and buildings anymore. And there's a lot of judgment needed as to whether this particular project will prove profitable. So some companies are going to go bust, even if the auditor has given them a clean bill of health. That's absolutely right. And we can't expect auditors to always pick up a fraud or to preempt a company failure. In fact, we wouldn't really want them to because, you know, we're capitalists and we think that companies should fail if, if they're not sustainable. Auditors don't perform the function of insurance. They're, they perform the function of assurance. And if we wanted insurance, we'd end up paying quite a lot more for audit. At the end of the day, audit involves lots of judgment when it comes to thinking about the risks that a company might face, thinking about provisions against future payments that the company might have to make. Auditors would say it's really important that they have a multidisciplinary team, and that's why they would say that they shouldn't be broken up. There's a possibility that technology might help with some of this. Audit looks at a sample of transactions at the moment, and with better machine learning techniques, it's possible that that sample of transactions could widen. Rajana, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. Let us know what you think about the future of auditing or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next up, a golden age. That's how some describe business conditions in Central Europe today. Politics there might be nasty and nationalist, but the economies are booming. Whether you look at rising wages, low unemployment, high rates of economic growth, high investment or rocketing exports, it seems that Central Europeans have never had it so good. In some parts, incomes are closing in on Western European levels. Take Slovakia, booming thanks to investment from big Western car companies. Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, reports. I travelled to Nitra, in the centre of the small country, to a site where Jaguar Land Rover, JLR, will open a massive car plant late in 2018. JLR's plant is emblematic of the sort of spending that lifted the region over the past quarter of a century. Well, I've just received my visitor's pass. I'm going to go inside the Jaguar Land Rover plant here at Nitra in Slovakia. Just to tell you what it looks like from the outside, there's a large grey low-rise 
warehouse underneath a grey sky. We're in the middle of a field. There's a hill off to the right of us with a church on top and a village at the, uh, the base of the hill. There's a bulldozer just off to the right of me. It's a blustery, cool morning in Slovakia, but this is a big operation for a small town. I was taken on a tour of the factory by a team of staff from JLR. Have you been in a, in a body shop like this before? Well, not as modern as this. I've been in, in India. I used to work in India, so I've seen one of your plants there. But this is, a, I think, another step up from the ones I've seen before. So, Yes, yes, that is uh, pretty much so. It's the um, latest state of technology. JLR is a relatively footloose international car maker. It exports its Range Rovers and other cars all over the world, including from Britain and China. It could have invested almost anywhere. I spoke to Alexander Wartberg, operations director for the firm, and I asked him why Slovakia, where they lured by tax favours, cheap labour, closeness to markets. We came to Slovakia because it gave us um, the best balance between a number of factors that are very important for establishing a new car facility. As part of our global growth, we're looking for a place where a well-developed supply chain would enable us to grow further and to further meet the needs of our global customers. We found that place here in Slovakia. But economic growing pains are evident in Central Europe too. Immigrants aren't welcome there. Societies are ageing and shrinking. Yet, as economies grow, businesses need to move into more sophisticated work. And that requires more supplies of skilled workers. Will there be enough of those in years to come? Well, certainly that is actually a very good question. It's an essential point. Um, and one of the uh, success factors for Slovakia, as well as for anyone who invests here, including ourselves, mm. to uh, be supported by the right growth and availability in the right type and degree and amount and skill, and uh, for us here, this obviously is um, education on, um, let's say, the technical traits on all different sorts of tiers. I personally see a lot of investment into dual education approaches, which I see as a very promising approach for Slovakia to develop a much thicker layer of available uh, skill and available workforce in that area. Yes, and that is absolutely essential for this region to continue with their successful path of growth. In fact, supplies of skilled labour are going to be tight. And more questions are coming. Not only where are the workers, but where are Central Europe's own big companies? Can the region grow forever by supplying labour to West European investors? Where are the local champions? JLR's plant is an emblem of the sort of success seen in the past 25 years. The next quarter of a century, however, needs new answers to difficult questions. Thanks to Adam Roberts for that report from Slovakia. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Philip Coggan, and look out for my first Bartleby column in this week's issue of The Economist. In London, this is The Economist.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.